Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode, it's our live show from L.A., and sadly, Clint and Brittany couldn't join us in L.A., but we were joined by Pod Save America's John Lovett for the news. We had an insightful conversation. I learned a lot. I think you'll learn a lot. After the news, I got to have a great conversation with Representative Maxine Waters. Then after that, I was joined on stage by Erica Chidi Cohen, who is a doula, author, and co-founder of Loom, which provides education about period, sex positivity, fertility, and pregnancy. I hope you enjoy the show. We start by talking about the candidates that are on our mind for 2020. Let's go. Hey guys, excited, excited to be here. I would love to know who, who's in your mind right now. Ooh, uh, Elizabeth Warren. I don't know if you've heard of her housing proposal. So her housing proposal is to spend $500 billion over 10 years uh, to specifically address the impact of redlining and racial discrimination in housing that is the largest contributor to the racial wealth gap today. Uh, and so her plan looks at communities that have been redlined in the past uh, and offers people living in those communities down payment assistance so that they can become homeowners at a time when black homeownership is at the lowest level since the 60s. So this is like major, it's specifically focusing on communities that have been disadvantaged specifically because of race uh, in the area that economically is the most important uh, to creating greater economic equity. And so I'm excited about Elizabeth Warren's plan. I think that she brings a level of rigor and attention to the policy details to this work uh, that I haven't seen from a lot of other candidates. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm excited to see how that develops. I think there are a lot of other questions about Elizabeth Warren uh, and some statements that she's made that we can talk about. But I think on the policy level, I'm most excited about her. Yeah, I'm evaluating all the candidates. I'm not choosing a candidate. But one thing that to me has always been clear is that on certainly on economic issues, Elizabeth Warren to me is the sort of intellectual leader of the Democratic Party. And I think if she were a man, that would just be taken for granted, right? It would just be part of her coverage, right? The way Paul Ryan was considered the intellectual leader of the Republican uh, Party. But I was gonna talk about Pete Buttigieg. There was a story about him today that he was just, you know, doing one of his things where politicians say hello to people in a diner because that's how we pick the person in charge of nuclear weapons. And uh, <laughs> so he's talking to people and a Norwegian reporter comes up to him and says, hi, I'm so-and-so from Norway. It's so nice to meet you. Pete Buttigieg just starts speaking in Norwegian. This Norwegian reporter literally gasps. <laughs> How does the mayor of South Bend, Indiana come to speak Norwegian? Turns out he read a book by a Norwegian author that had been translated to English. He liked the book so much he wanted to read other books. None of the other books were translated, so he learned Norwegian. <laughs> Here's the point I want to make about this. <laughs> How did we lose to Donald Trump? <laughs> he said, while Pete Buttigieg was just casually dropping that he speaks Norwegian, Norwegian, Donald Trump spent all day live tweeting Fox News, the dumbest channel on planet Earth. <laughs> so I like Cory Booker. I think that people think Cory is corny. 
I don't think Corey is corny. I think that he really like is the love guy. Like I think he believes those things. I think he doesn't get enough credit for like the policy work that he's done. So you think about the baby bonds a bill that he put out around closing the racial wealth gap, huge. He put out something recently called the Next Step Act, huge around criminal justice. So like I like Corey. I think that uh, to your other point is that Corey's actually done a lot of groundwork in places like Iowa that's just not getting covered, but like he's doing it and still people are coming out to see. Uh, I think Warren is, I think she's going to be the lodestone or like the, she's going to be the marker on the left around wealth. I think that is true. Every time I've heard Warren talk about things that aren't about wealth, it's like a little shaky. So I like want to, I just want to see what that actually turns out to be, but I'm, I'm hopeful about that. I don't dislike Bernie. We met with Bernie, uh, last go round and it was... <laughs> It was a hard meeting because we said things like, you know, he said, he's like, I support a jobs bill that's gonna have 70 million, get 70 million jobs. And we're like, cool, well, how's that gonna go to people of color and poor people? And he's like, oh, it just will. And you're like, Bernie, what? Like, it's not, <laughs> like, that's just not how it works. And he's like, well, do you have advice? And you're like, I, you've been in the Senate longer than I've been alive. I don't know, like, you, you tell me. I don't know, like, you tell me what we need to do with the law. It's like, that was one of those things. And then the reparations answer the first time, like, a couple years ago, it was like, well, nobody was talking about reparations, right? So it was like new for everybody. This go round, it's like, I'm unclear like how we're still in the same place. So I'm nervous about that. Klobuchar, the preface of what I'm about to say is that we need to ask all the candidates about how they treat their staff and not just her. I think that is true. And not just women. Like everybody needs to be accountable. Um, and she was a prosecutor too, by the way. So you notice her prosecutorial record is not being critiqued in the way that Kamala Harris is prosecutorial. Right, right. So there's an intersectionality to this as well. Now, the last quote I saw from Amy Klobuchar, though, was something like, people want a strong president. And you're like, Amy, that's not it. That is... <laughs> so I want to say something about that. Okay, so, go ahead. So I don't know. I'm, I'm... We're going to defeat our geopolitical enemies. We need somebody willing to ask Vladimir Putin to shave their legs. <laughs> uh, no, she, so, you know, I do not know that she has landed on the right answer to the question about how she treats staff. I do think it's she a legitimate issue. She has certainly not issue. landed on that answer. No, now, <laughs> I respect, I believe, the second I read these stories, and, and I'll just also say that as somebody who works in the Senate, I was waiting for these stories. This, this is... You'd heard this before. Look, Notorious. You, hear, you hear about people that are incredibly nice, you hear about people that are incredibly tough, and then you hear about the outliers who are worse than tough, and she was one of them. Just, you heard it for years, you were waiting for these stories, and you know, look, when you decide you're gonna run for president, a new level of scrutiny comes, and it, it was inevitable that these stories were gonna come out. Now, at first she started by kind of apologizing, or at least saying that, like, trying to spin it by saying, like, you know, have I, you know, been tough? She asked, but I also have people who love me. Very well true. Now she's trying this new thing, which I love, which is like the only way out is through. Like, yeah, I'm tough. I'll be tough on the international stage. I'll treat Putin the way I treat my staff. And, uh, <laughs> is but, that really the quote, I'll treat Putin? No, no, I was no. like, what? But said, you know, you, you that might break. actually work. I'm telling you, it's the only way. <laughs> I, but there is another thing she could do, which is genuinely apologize and show growth. Um, it is very rare for politicians to do that. I'd be excited to see it. Who else? I, I like Kamala. I don't know how long she's going to get away with not addressing the prosecutorial record. Who else is there? Oh, Beto. Be I like Beto. I think this rollout didn't go the way he thought it was going to go, but I like, 
I like everything else that I've seen from him. The rollout was just weird. That was weird. The Vanity Fair cover, the quotes in that article were just, they were weird. So I'm interested to see what his policies will be like. I think it was easy to look like the furthest left when Ted Cruz was the opposite of you because Ted Cruz is Ted Cruz. <laughs> I don't know. I'll be interested to see. This rollout was just a weird blip. Like I liked the Facebook video guy. Like when he was making all those things and the Medium posts, this, this Vanity Fair thing was a little odd. Yeah, uh, I like Julian Castro. I love that that's your response to Beto. <laughs> yeah, I don't have anything. I don't have anything about him other than we'll see how he how he sort of evolves and explains. He's sort of new to this, right? New to the stage, the national stage. I think there are a lot of questions about his past record uh, in Congress, his record uh, as a city council member, and I think we want somebody who's progressive, who's on the left. Uh, and I'm interested to see how he sort of pivots or explains how he wasn't always to the left. Um, I also think that you know, so it is good to see him sort of adopting some of the policies that have already been proposed. So he recently came out in support of Cory Booker's baby bonds proposal, which we just talked about. Um, so I think that's good. Uh, but I also want to see a thought leader who's going to be proposing far-reaching proposals, not sort of appropriating them from other people. So I, I hope to see that evolve. To Julian Castro, his answer on reparations I thought was solid. I thought he helped build like a moral case for it in a way that a lot of politicians you know, Bernie Sanders was like, oh, we shouldn't write a check. And, you know, other people were sort of dismissing it or saying we should do something without explaining what that is. So I'm excited to see Julian Castro sort of evolve in this race. I think he hasn't yet had his breakout moment, uh, but I, I think he could be sort of that sleeper candidate that has that moment sort of with his convention speech that he had previously uh, and really becomes sort of the, the front runner in that way. I will say, uh, as always, you know, again, the conversation about Beto, I think, has these two poles in the national media and in the, the Twitter land, which is the rollout's going very badly, he's overhyped, or I love Beto, he's the person it should be. Meanwhile, what's actually happening on the ground is he's standing on top of counters in Iowa and saying things, and it's appealing, right? Maybe it could be more appealing, maybe it could be less appealing, I don't know how it's working, but the, the election is a grind. Winning votes and winning people over to your side is a grind. Uh, that takes time, and you won't see the the, the victories or the or the defeats uh, for many months. It's going to all unfold over over a long period of time. So that's what I would say about that. So my piece of news is a recent study that came out of the National Academy of Sciences, uh, and this is focused on pollution. So we've heard a lot about pollution, climate change, the danger that our planet's currently in. We've heard about animal species like going extinct. I don't know if you've heard about this. This is the deep stuff. Um, well, they conducted an analysis to really find out uh, who was producing the pollution and where was the pollution going? How, how was this pollution impacting people within the United States? So to do that, uh, they did this incredible analysis where they took the data on where the pollution was coming from. So, you know, power plants, food production industries, uh, all of these different sources. Then they looked at data to see who was consuming those sources, who was consuming the most electricity, uh, who was consuming the most food, uh, all of that. What they found was a racial inequity in the consumption versus the receipt of that pollution that was created through the consumption. What they found was that uh, white communities in the United States were consuming more than black and brown communities such that uh, they were 17% uh, less likely to actually receive the pollution that they were consuming. 
right? So they were consuming more but receiving less pollution overall. You compare that to black and brown communities where uh, for black communities it was uh, 56%. They were receiving 56% more pollution than they were consuming uh, compared to other groups. And for Latino communities, it was 63% more. Um, so, you know, we've talked about environmental racism, uh, environmental justice uh, in the past, but what the study did that was interesting was that it actually quantified uh, the extent to which that pollution was being absorbed and consumed inequitably across our country. So I wanted to bring this to the table because, uh, you know, it's obviously a super important issue, uh, but I think the racial dimension of this is, is a huge part of uh, the environmental justice conversation. It's interesting, too. That it, it almost feels like... Um at every level of the environmental discussion, the pain is distributed unfairly, right? At a global level, you look at the harm that will come from climate change, it will be visited upon the poorest people uh, and the most disadvantaged people all around the world. You go into the United States as a country, you look where uh, people are harmed, they are harmed where, often where real estate is cheaper, where that's where they can put the truck depot and that's where they can put the school buses and that's where they can put the landfill and that's where they can put the smokestacks and that's where they can put everything that's throwing off pollution. And it also speaks to, I think, why it is so hard to have a honest conversation about the environment, because I think part of the reason that it gets polarized on a partisan level is because if you don't see it, if you don't feel it, it's a political issue. If you don't see it, you don't feel it, your tribe is what you should listen to. And it's interesting, you see that around coastal areas, right? That the partisan breakdown around pollution doesn't really hold up right on the coast, right? Right where people will see the oil spill, right where people will see the harm. But you go inland, right? And then the climate denialism, the, the, the partisanship, it comes roaring right back. And so I think one of the great challenges we have uh, is having a conversation about how much harm we're doing to the environment when whole groups of people are told, A, it's not real, and B, they don't see it. And it is this thing, people often ask us, why are we making everything about race? And we're like, race made this about us, right? Like, we're just talking about it. And like, the other thing is that we've tried to help people understand, like, why, the people are like, why, do you, why are you guys talking about the environment? We thought that y'all were like criminal justice and the police. And, and we're like, it, it's not a win if we get you out of jail and you die from air pollution. You know what I mean? That's not like, <laughs> that is not a win. And I didn't know until preparing for the news that more people die from air pollution a year from, than from car crashes and murders. I didn't know that. Like, that was interesting. So, like, it is one of those things that, like, all of these things are linked. We had somebody on to talk about lead, but most people don't realize that there's no cure for lead. So the best we can do is put kids in therapy, not enough therapy in low-income communities. You probably know about lead because of Flint. Most people have heard about Flint. Is that what a lot of people don't realize, this is like my like, obsession, is that uh, Flint had the single biggest decrease in childhood literacy that we've ever recorded. In five years, it was a 75% decrease in childhood literacy in Flint. And it's like an exceptional example of the link between environmental racism and educational justice. And if you think that Flint is just an environmental issue, you're actually like missing the equate. You're missing half the, the impact, you know? And like, how do we get people to understand that most of these issues are linked? The other thing I'll say is that we know that a third of all the kids in housing projects has asthma. Uh, we were trying to figure out for a long time, like why? What we now know is that it's cockroaches and mice, that when they die, their bodies turn into dust, and that dust has an allergen that has a specific trigger in children. And it's like, 
when you understand what the actual problem is, you think about solutions differently. So public housing is a public housing issue and a cleanliness issue that is not about like families doing things good or bad. It is about like the condition of the building that is beyond the family. And we also, back to lead, kids were eating lead paint chips for a long time. We were trying to figure out like, why are kids eating lead paint chips? And if you remember, if you are old enough to have been alive, I was not, but during that time, uh, when, when women were being, like black mothers were being demonized for their kids eating paint chips. And it was like, well, why are kids eating paint chips? And what we now know, who knows? Yeah, lead is naturally sweet. So kids, were, like if you've been around a toddler, you know they'll eat anything. And like, if the wall tastes like candy, they're certainly eating the wall, you know? <laughs> and it's like, how do we start to make people understand the way the environment actually impacts their day-to-day -day life so it's not this abstraction? They're like, oh, the environment. It's like, no, like you live and work and play in the environment. And that these issues of justice like come up all the time. Sam, you said something, um, you were talking about like where um, black people live in the country. Do you yes. remember this? Yes. Can you say that? Because I'm just fascinated by that when we okay. think about this issue in particular. Yeah, so geographically, 54% of the black population lives in the South. Did you know uh, that? The majority of black people live in the South still to this day. 54%? And yes. Uh, it's also interesting when you think about this politically because the South is solidly Republican controlled, despite the fact that black people vote overwhelmingly Democratic which means uh, black people are effectively disenfranchised throughout the area where most black people live. Fascinated by that. And you think about some, I'm sorry, I'm just like, I'm like, Sam, tell the people, tell the people, Sam. Um, is that you think about the way the environmental, environmental racism shows up in the South. There are some communities where like sewage pumps are actually pumping sewage on people's lawns and things like that. And like, what does it mean that we've actually disenfranchised black people in, at such a disproportionate rate relative to like the population of the place is fascinating. So a woman named Naomi Rao was just confirmed to replace Brett Kavanaugh on the DC Circuit Court. This is uh, the second most powerful court in the country. Uh, with that confirmation, Donald Trump has confirmed his 36th judge to the appeals court. In Barack Obama's eight years, he got 55. When Barack Obama left office, there were 17 open appeals court seats. Those are the ones Donald Trump has been able to fill. That means he has now filled one-fifth of uh, the appeals court in this country, has now been filled in these first two years. Uh, the clip of confirmations under this Republican Senate and Mitch McConnell uh, has been extraordinary. They're now going to turn to the circuit court, the level below the appeals court, and they are going like gangbusters. There used to be a lot of rules in the Senate that afforded the home state senators, even if they were the opposing party, to have a say in this process. They're not interested in that. There was just a confirmation that really pissed off the Democrats who said basically you didn't follow this old precedent, right? So that precedent's gone. So in the next uh, year and a half, we're going to see an extraordinary number of right-wing judges confirmed. It's just a reminder that Donald Trump and Barack Obama uh, appointed the same number of Supreme Court justices. This is the dirty deal at the heart of Donald Trump. This is underneath all of it, all the, all the never Trump stuff, all of the capitulation, all of the corruption, all of it boils down to the fact that the last line of defense for Republicans who don't want to admit to what they're participating in is, is on judges. And Mitch McConnell knows it, which is why he has been going so hard. I mean, this is a heist. Uh, and the judges, they're the, they're the money. Uh, and they're going to, this is like, this is the end of heat. And they're going to take those bags of cash 
and they're gonna go for those getaway cars. Run with this metaphor. Run with it. As fast as Run with it. Yeah. <laughs> Run with it. So, but and the other thing too is, you know, the the point I wanted to make about this is we are losing this fight. We really are. And I think sometimes I think because we're we're so ensconced in Twitter and we don't want to say bad things about our side and we don't want to we want to always seem hopeful and get people in the fight. I think sometimes it's a it's important to say, hey, here's a fight where we are just getting the crap knocked out of us. And I think a question for all the presidential candidates, a question for us as we compete to take back the Senate is, how can we remind voters who are sympathetic to LGBTQ rights, to civil rights, to women's rights, to environmental protection, uh, to restricting corporate power and corporate abuses, all the issues that this, these courts are now going to run roughshod over, how do we get this to be a bigger part of the conversation? Because how many people here knew that when Barack Obama uh, left office, there were 17 openings on the appeals court? I didn't. I don't know if how many people here knew. You know, the right has done a good job of raising this, and they've done a good job of raising it uh, by talking about ideology, not outcomes. They talk about constitutional conservatives, whatever that means. They talk about their judicial philosophy. Well, oh, look how lucky it is that these outcomes turned out to disenfranchise people, to empower corporations, to restrict regulations of the environment, to undo civil rights and LGBTQ rights and women's rights. On the, on, on the liberal side, we tend to talk more about outcomes, protecting people, protecting the environment. I don't think there's as much of a robust conversation around the ideology of the judges we care about. I don't think we've had enough of a conversation about why we support the kinds of judges we support, not because I think we're so scared about seeing our rights overturned. And so as we head into these next two years, as we watch them use this last bit of power they have now that we have the House to get all these judges on the court, we should remember that this is one of the most important, if not the most important question uh, facing voters is who the next president will appoint to the Supreme Court, the Appeals Court, and the Circuit Court. I mean, it's been wild to see, you know, just to provide a little bit more data on who Trump is nominating, 92% uh, of those that he's nominated to the courts have been white, 76% uh, have been male, um, one in five of the entire uh, number of justices uh, on the courts, in the appellate courts, uh, he's nominated now. And I think, you know, to your point, a lot of people weren't thinking about the courts when they went to the ballot box in 2016. We were thinking about, and there were a lot of people who weren't excited about Hillary Clinton, who were like, you know, I, I'm not going to vote, I don't support Hillary Clinton, uh, something about Hillary Clinton I don't really support. But they weren't thinking about all of the decisions that a president makes. It's not just about the one candidate. It is about all of the other people on that candidate's team that become that, can that candidate's administration when they're elected. It's about all the appointments that they make. And these are lifetime appointments which we should look into because I don't think that that makes any sense anymore, first of all. But Republicans have played this game where they are literally extending for decades conservative rule in this country against the majority of people here, right? Like this is a profoundly anti-democratic thing that they're doing uh, and this just impacts us for decades. Like the Supreme Court you know, if Trump wins again, we hope he doesn't win again. If he wins again, that could be 20 or 30 years of conservative rule on the Supreme Court. And like, I'm not trying to live like that, right? Like, <laughs> like that alone is, despite anything that any of these candidates says or does, like that 30 years on the Supreme Court being Trump controlled is like a wild thing to even think about. And so I hope that we can think of going into the 2020 election 
about all of those other sort of collateral consequences of who wins the presidency. <laughs> it makes me think too about uh, what is the end game. And there was a study that came out a while ago uh, that said that if Trump successfully did all of the things on immigration that he was proposing, that it would delay the country being majority minority by at least a decade. And you're like, that is like a, we were upset about some of the immigration stuff or all the immigration stuff that he's done. I don't think there's anything people praise that he's done around immigration. I think no, I had never considered that he was trying to keep the country wider longer. That was like the end game from a numbers perspective. Like I just didn't, you know, cause the country is projected to be majority minority in the next 10, 15 years. But that like the net effect of all the decisions would actually just delay that. And you're like, y'all are just playing a different game. You know, you probably saw the hearing of the guy that they nominated where I'll just read you. Somebody uh, at the, on the Senate said, have you tried a jury trial? I have not. Have you ever argued a motion in federal court? No. He had never done a bench trial, trialed any civil or criminal case in federal or state court. And he was a nominee. And you're like, somebody paid $500,000. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Ray, you're being so unfair. He was on the water polo team. Right. He got a fantastic like, SAT oh score. But it is a reminder of all the ways the system works uh, that people don't think about. And we often say that like, the level that we're fighting at is always at the system level, that we never let the system off the hook, that we believe in programs. Programs are really important. Most people understand programs, especially like as people who work in communities, but we're mindful that most of the programs exist because the system failed in the first place. And we always wanna make sure that like, we understand that programs deliver like momentary things, they help close gaps, but the system actually has to work. And there are a lot of people in 2016 that fought us. We supported Hillary during the, at the end. And like, people are like, you guys are sellouts, the system, da, 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 da. And we're like, the thing is that you don't realize what the system does in your life until it breaks or stop doing, it stops doing it, right? And then you're like, oh, I didn't know that, you know, half the kids, half the kids born in the country get their food from food stamps, you know? That people like didn't, didn't realize that until all of a sudden like food stamps are starting to get cut by people. I do think that as we go to 2020, we need to be more mindful of reminding people of the way the system actually functions in our life every day so that they remember that like when you go to the ballot box, it doesn't have to be about how much you love that person. You actually voting for a whole set of things that like impact your life every single day, you know? Uh, my news, so I'm going to ask you to, to vote. So of the arrests that happen in the country, uh, what percent do you think are for violent crimes? So you'll raise your hand. So if you think that more than 50% of the arrests that happen in the country are for violent crime, raise your hand. 40 to 50% for violent crime, raise your hand. You have to raise your hand at some point. Uh, 30 to 40% for violent crime. 10 to 20% for violent crime. And less than 10%. Sam. 5%. Yes. So, so according to the FBI's Uniform Crime Report, 5% of all arrests that are made nationwide are for violent crime, another 12% are for property crime, and the vast majority of arrests that are made are for low-level offenses. Things like disorderly conduct, having an open container of alcohol, there are actually more arrests nationwide for marijuana possession than for all violent crimes combined, and that's even after so many states have legalized. So, when you think about what the police are actually doing, what they're spending all of these resources in city budgets, usually like 20, 30, 40% of the entire city budget is for policing. A lot of those resources are just going to arresting people for low level offenses and feeding into this system of mass incarceration. So I wanted to talk about this. I also asked you to, can you talk about civil asset forfeiture as I go into my news? Civil asset forfeiture, okay. Civil asset forfeiture is a practice 
that was created during the war on drugs, which I guess we're still in. Like, I don't even know. We don't end wars anymore. Like, there's just... no victory. <laughs> there's, there's no winning the war on drugs till we all in jail, I guess. But so civil asset forfeiture allows police to take your cash and property even if you haven't been convicted of a crime. So originally, the idea behind it was police could stop somebody who was, you know, a drug trafficker, a drug dealer, and if they found that they had, let's say, $100,000 in the trunk, they could take those $100,000 after having to go through the judicial process first. Um, however, in reality, what that means is that police are able to stop people, take the cash from their wallets, take their cars, take their homes, without even having to prove to a jury that that person is even guilty of anything. Uh, and so nationwide, what you see is that there's actually more money taken through civil asset forfeiture every year by the police than the total amount of money taken from all the burglaries that happen in the United States. So right, right, that's civil asset right, forfeiture. Right, right. So I say this because uh, two things. One is that we believe that everybody can know as much about the way the systems work and that you are smart enough to understand it. And that part of our work as organizers is to help people just understand what's happening. The second is that when you believe myths about the way the system is working in your life or in society, you actually are more inclined to believe a whole set of solutions that support that myth. So if you believe that 50% of the arrests that happen in the country for violent crime, you're like more willing to think that like the police are solution, those sort of things. And what's sort of wild about the 5% of uh, arrests for violent crime is that that's just arrests. So less than that is convictions, you know? Like it's actually a pretty small number, but people believing these myths about the way uh, society works actually allows them to support a whole set of solutions. So in Ohio, uh, there were a set of people saying that we should arm teachers. So there were a set of teachers that uh, sued trying to stop this process. They lost. So now teachers in Ohio can get concealed carry uh, licenses really easy. And so easy that in Ohio, for somebody who's engaged in active shooter training, the police actually have to go through 700 hours of training. Teachers, as a part of the settlement, will only have to go through 27 hours. <laughs> right, you're like, this can't be real. And there are, in this one district where, this, where the lawsuit originated, there are like seven people, seven staff members in the school who now have a concealed carry license uh, to carry at school. And it made me think, I used to teach sixth grade math, and it's like, I don't even know in my classroom where I would have been able to put a gun. Like, my classroom was like old. I don't know where I would have been able to put a gun where kids wouldn't have been able to get to it. You know, people often say that like the police have to make a lot of split second decisions. It's like teachers make a new decision. The research says teachers make new decisions every 30 seconds. You're like, I don't even know like at what point I'd like go get the gun, da da da. And as a black man, they might think I'm a shooter. It's like, that's actually not even a win either. And you know, we talk so much about like the burdens that we placed on teachers that like teachers can't be like the community center person and the social worker and the da da da. But like, if they can't be all those things, how do you think they can also be the marksman? You're like, that doesn't make, like that doesn't make a lot of sense. And I wanted to bring that here because, you know, it's been interesting to see the right skirt around any form of gun control and do these sort of things as like, a, well, if there were just more guns, everybody would be safe. And it's like, I don't think that's the solution. And I certainly don't think arming teachers makes any sense. Yep. So, you know, this is building on a history now of criminalization of students in school, right? A history of responding to mass shootings 
by putting more police in schools, more people with weapons, now teachers as well with weapons in schools, and criminalizing students. And when you look at that history, like anybody who's familiar with the actual history of what happened when we did that the last time would know not to arm teachers. Because the last time was after Columbine, 1999. Uh, there was a lot of funding made available by the federal government to hire police officers to put in schools. And, of course, the whole reason they did this was around how do we protect students from mass shooters. And they ended up hiring more than 10,000 police officers in schools across the country. Those police officers disproportionately went to predominantly black and brown schools. And when you look at what actually happened as a consequence, they didn't stop mass shootings. School shootings in particular have gone up since then, right? So it didn't solve that. What it did do, when you look at the data of what those police were actually doing in the context of campus, uh, two-thirds of all arrests that were made on school campus, 70,000 arrests a year of students on campus, two-thirds of those were black and brown students. And when you look at why these students were arrested, it was not for having weapons or you know, doing things that were you know, actually violent or dangerous, like we talked about with the arrest statistics. 50% um, of all of those arrests that were made were for students fighting one another in school like not with weapons, just like fighting, which in the past would mean you would get like a detention, you might get suspended, you definitely wouldn't get arrested and charged. Another 25% were for just disorderly conduct. Like they didn't even define what it was, it was just students like making noise in class. There were about 5% for uh, drugs and alcohol on campus. Uh, it was a tiny, tiny fraction of all of the arrests that were made were for weapons. It was like one or two percent, uh, none of which ended up being in like a, a shooting event or, or, or dangerous to folks. Uh, so that's what the police have done since 1999 in schools. And now what the conversation has shifted to on the right is, well, the police actually aren't doing enough. We need to hire a whole bunch of other people with weapons too, who are trained less with all the issues with police, getting seven times more training in firearms than de-escalation nationwide. They're going to hire teachers with even less training, no training in de-escalation, no training in how not to shoot people, just a little couple hours of how to shoot people accurately is what the, the teachers are getting. So yeah, this is just repeating the same mistakes again and again and again, and we know exactly which students this is going to impact. Yeah, it's the, um, you know, they say that we need guns to defend against a military state, and then we need a military state to defend against guns. And, um, as with all conversations, this conversation around mass shootings is broken. Um, so there's an incredible amount of gun violence in this country. The majority of it is suicides. After that, it is, for lack of a better term, quotidian murder that's taking place all across the country all the time. And then there are these mass shootings, these terrifying, horrible events that captivate the country, that draw attention, that create a cycle in which someone out there who is isolated, broken, desiring to do violence, committed to some ideological cause, whether it's from a white supremacist group, whether it's some kind of a group they found online, whether it's some other motivation, whether it's a motivation that's hard to understand, decides to do this. And because the mass shootings are so rare, inevitably the policy responses about mass shootings, the vast majority of the impact has nothing to do with mass shootings because mass shootings are rare, hard to predict, hard to understand even after they've happened. So, you know, I think these conversations get combined. We have to have a, a gun violence conversation. And then separately, it also relates back to New Zealand. It relates to the synagogue shooting. We need to figure out how we are going to grapple with this kind of contagion, this idea of going out with the, in a blaze of glory. Because 
you know, immediately after some kind of a mass shooting, there's this kind of political rush to find out the cause, right? Did they do it because they were terrorists? They were, they were Muslim terrorists. They're, they're, this is Muslims, this is, they're Muslims, or they do it because they're white supremacists, which is a growing movement fanned by Donald Trump, fanned by an international order of white supremacists around the world. But ultimately, the reason these kinds of people latch onto uh, can be distinct. What brings them together is this kind of vicious desire for glory and this desire for violence and this isolation in which they seek uh, a community online of other violent people seeking the same ends. And YouTube is responsible. Uh, for the kind of content they put in front of people. Uh, Twitter is responsible, these tech companies are responsible, our politicians are responsible. But the truth is, I think one of the reasons this debate is so hard is we don't have a good answer for how to find these people, how to stop these people, how to prevent this kind of contagion from spreading. It is with us, it is international, and it is not going anywhere, and we gotta talk about it. What I've learned recently over the past couple of weeks now uh, I've heard from people working in major tech companies about the steps that they've taken to prevent the spread of ISIS-related content online. So it turns out, uh, after 2014, uh, major tech companies like Google, which owns YouTube also, uh, and others, sought to figure out how do we stop uh, this extremist content from spreading online and radicalizing more people. It turns out that they figured out how to do it. So when you look at the number of accounts, uh, ISIS-related accounts, uh, and the sort of following of those accounts over time from 2014 through 2016, they cut dramatically, dramatically, by more than 80%. That is a direct response of those companies uh, to figuring out how to find these accounts, how to stop the spread of information that's posted from these accounts, and they did it quite effectively. Over the same time period, white supremacist accounts grew dramatically because those tech companies weren't focused on stopping those accounts. And now we see a situation where 100% of people killed by extremists last year, according to the Anti-Defamation League, were killed by right-wing extremists, the vast majority of whom are white supremacists. So this is the fundamental terrorist threat across the globe, and tech companies are sort of sitting on the tools and the algorithms to address it, and they've simply refused to do so. I saw the video of the New Zealand shooting not, like I just didn't know, it was like there was a video on Twitter, I click and I'm like, ooh, didn't, like I didn't know what it was. And you know, it was interesting in hindsight to think about like what it means that you wanted this to go viral. Like you like, every moment of that was like playing with like the camera on his head. Like this was like a moment you wanted that glory. And like it took YouTube a long time to get the video down. I was like shocked at how long the video stayed up on YouTube and how long it stayed up on Twitter. In the same way that like I remember the beheading videos of ISIS early, like because they were also spreading on Twitter. But I haven't seen any of that content in a very long time. But like the New Zealand shooting video just like stayed and stayed. It's a little, you know, the companies have to do more, but it's also this whack-a-mole thing where, you know, Reddit does a better job of getting it, so they find some other place to go have these conversations. It's just this cancerous aspect of just us being online. And what is real is that like the platforms are, some people come to the platforms bad and, and the platform didn't do that, right? They're like, you were a bad person when you made the Twitter account and like, <laughs> Twitter can't stop you from We that. were all bad right. when we made our Twitter account. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's give it up for Lovett joining us today for the news. Hey. Thanks guys. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned, there's more to come.
In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened, but soon a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. Pot Save America is brought to you by Helix. If you're looking for better sleep, you need to upgrade your mattress with Helix. The Helix lineup offers 20 unique mattresses, including the award-winning Lux Collection, the newly released and high-end Helix Elite Collection, hmm. a mattress designed for big and tall sleepers, and even a mattress made just for kids, which Charlie has. Charlie has a Helix mattress now just for kids, in his uh, race car bed. Very excited, very happy about it. Take the Helix Sleep Quiz and find your perfect mattress in under two minutes, and uh, it ships straight to your door free of charge. They even offer a 100-night trial and a 10- to 15-year warranty to try out your new Helix mattress. If you're a side sleeper, you can choose a model with memory foam layers to provide optimal pressure relief. There are also models with more responsive foam to cradle your body for essential support in stomach and back sleeping positions. Plus, check out enhanced cooling features to keep you from overheating while you sleep. It's no wonder Helix has over 12,000 five-star reviews. And you, you've loved your Helix mattress. I love I got a Don Lux. There you go. And there it's you go. great. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash crooked. That's helixsleep.com slash crooked. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. A big thanks to John Lovett for doing the news. Thank you, John. I got to talk to Congressman Waters, who made history as the first woman and first African-American chair of the House Financial Services Committee. She also serves as a member of the Steering and Policy Committee, the Congressional Progressive Caucus, and the Congressional Black Caucus. Here's our combo. (laughs) 
We're excited to have you. I'm excited to be here. So you, uh, you have a busy day job. Yeah, busy, 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 but you know. And what are we, what are we, what are we gonna do? Well, if they listen to me, we're gonna impeach them. Uh-oh, there we go. <laughs> there we go. And you saw New Zealand like we all saw. Do you think that there are gonna be uh, congressional hearings on white supremacist terrorists? Or like, what can, what can Congress do about the terror of white supremacy? Well, you know, I think we have never really dealt with the subject. Uh, and I think we're getting closer to it now than we ever have. The resolution that came out after all of the uh, talk about uh, anti-Semitism, uh, it turned out that the resolution in included everything from racism to homophobia to you name it. And uh, that's the first time that we came anywhere close uh, to dealing with uh, those issues. So I don't know, but I think there's a possibility. And what is it like now to be the chairwoman of, of a major committee? I've got to gavel. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what's up with the committee? What, what's, on, uh, what's on the agenda? Well, you know, we started out with some of the issues that we've been dealing with for so long uh, that we had not been able to get any traction with, you know, Jeb Hinterland, who handled that committee. And so I have a huge bill on homelessness, okay. a $13 billion bill. And uh, I had a hearing on that. And that was one of our first kind of big issues. And every Democrat was right there in support of, you know, getting funds out to our cities and our states to uh, build housing and have supportive services. So we're starting out good. I don't know where it's going to go, but so far, so good. And do you think that we'll get these tax returns? Oh, yeah, we're going to get them. 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 I, um, I talked with Neil over at Ways and Means, and um, you know, he was a little bit slow in getting started, but he knows that if there's one thing that the people in this country want, it is those tax returns. And so he started, it's a process that he has to go through, but he's gonna get them. Yeah, we're gonna get them, yes. And uh, you know, one of the topics that a lot of candidates have been, have been asked about has been reparations. Yes. Do you think that we might actually get a reparations package or a bill? Do you, what do you think about the reparations work? I think it's going to be difficult. Thank you. Thank you, I Sam. think it's going to be difficult, but the conversation has started again. <laughs> okay. uh, as you know, John Conyers was the leader on that issue. Yep. And so uh, Sh Sheila Jackson Lee has taken up uh, the bill, but it's only a study. And so I think that we have a few people now, more people, who are willing to talk about it. I don't know how far we're going to get, but I do think there's a possibility of that issue, uh, you know, getting some steamrolling. Yeah. Now, what about the, this is one of the most diverse Congresses yes. that we've seen in a lifetime. Yes. A yes. lot of new blood, yes. a lot of young yes. people, yes. more women yes. than ever before. Yes. Have you felt the difference? Oh, and yes. And like, what does that feel like? Oh, absolutely. You know, on Financial Services Committee, the committee that I chair, if you watched our hearings, for example, with Wells Fargo uh, the other day, or the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau person that took over from Mulvaney, you saw the new members, those young members, 
who rent, I mean, they went places that I've never seen members go in terms of asking real questions, pinning them down, you know, making them deal with uh, responses that made, they didn't make good sense, but they tried to make them make good sense. <laughs> but no, it was wonderful. It's wonderful. Yes, I feel it. I see it. And I think it's going to make a difference. Because we are in your, uh, this is your state, uh, what should people in California be paying attention to? Like, are there any issues here that you want to make sure that, uh, that this set of people is thinking about? Yes, uh, there are a lot of issues that we should be thinking about. Uh, you're right, you're in California, but don't forget, number one, we have some of the same problems uh, that other states are having all over the country. This homelessness thing and this lack of affordable housing is real in this country, and we've got to do something about it. The uh, Secretary Ben Carson does not have a clue. And, um, <laughs> He doesn't. He, he, and, and, you know, the resources that he's got, uh, he wants to use them unwisely. And he wants to increase uh, the rent on the poorest people in the country, the Section 8 people, the people who are living now on subsidized housing. He wants to increase that rent. These are people in public housing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Do you think he'll last all four years, Ben Carson? Well, you know, I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, I think, first of all, he absolutely had no business being there in the first place. He doesn't have a clue about what he's doing. He has failed miserably. And uh, I think he, he's going to want to get out himself. <laughs> are there any other cabinet members that we might not be paying attention to, but that their agencies are really doing damage? All of them. <laughs> <laughs> are you kidding? Uh, look. You've got to, well, you all know Mnuchin over at uh, the Treasury Office, the one that messed with my time. Uh, <laughs> you've got Wilbur Ross. Did you see him on television the other day, catatonic? <laughs> DeVos? Oh, my goodness. Oh, I mean, really wants to do away with public education? And she is really undermining all of these students who are already being cheated by these private colleges and universities, kind of like the one that Trump had in New York, where he was supposed to be teaching young people how to be developers and do real estate. Well, we've got a lot of those in California, all over the country. And uh, she is supportive of them. They're ripping off the most vulnerable people in our society. I've been working on this issue for years before I left the legislature in uh, California. I created law that's been undermined. And I'm, I'm going after it again uh, at the national level. But this is a real issue uh, that, you know, is just indicative of the incompetence and the lack of care of the members of the president's cabinet. They're bad. As a matter of fact, it's a criminal enterprise in the White House. Mm -hmm. There are some people whose hope has been challenged in these moments. They have called, emailed, they protested, they did all the things that they were told to do, and the world hasn't changed in the way that they thought it would change. What do you say to people whose hope might be challenged in these moments? Well, I am the eternal optimist, and there are many days when I am disappointed, I'm discouraged, I'm angry, uh, but, you know, I keep going, and a good night's sleep, I get up the next day and I'm ready to go again. And that's what we must do. We must have courage. Uh, we must not get tired, because they expect us uh, to 
walk away uh, because uh, we've been beaten down. And we must have the confidence uh, that we should have uh, that this country belongs to us, this world belongs to us, and that we are not about to let someone like Trump and his cabinet uh, absolutely undermine the Constitution of the United States of America, create division, and, and alienate all of our allies, isolate us, and do dangerous things that we don't even know what it's going to mean you know, for the future. So we can't give up. And I'm saying to folks, we really do have power, and we really do have influence. And collectively, we have a lot. But far too long, elected officials have been getting away with ceremony, you know. And in the black community, you know, we have uh, elected officials that come in the churches. They learn some verse from the Bible the night before <laughs> so that they can get up the next day and pretend like they're, you know, so religious and they know so much about God. Right. And nobody asks them any questions. They give their little talk and they walk out. Got to stop letting people do that. And I would like to see folks have more meetings in their communities. Call their elected officials and say, you know, we want you in my backyard on a certain date. We've got 25 people in my block, in my area, and on and on and on. People do not ask their elected officials what they're doing. They don't follow their votes enough. They don't challenge them enough. And I'd like to see more of that. Keep that going. That's where the power comes from. There we go. Healthcare. Healthcare was. Yes, that's right. There were a, right. a lot of town halls about healthcare, right. a lot of calls about healthcare. That that's was a, right. a big moment. And last few questions What do you say uh, to people who are questioning their role in the Democratic Party? Where they're like, you know what, the party doesn't speak for me. I get that most people who look like me might vote along those lines, but they are struggling to find themselves inside the party. What do you say to those people? Uh, when people have an opportunity to compare in the way that they're comparing now, I think they're beginning to see a significant difference. So whether you're talking about the tax uh, scam that the president did, or you're looking at the cost of uh, prescription drugs and the whole Medicare issue that still is unresolved, even though we have Obamacare, uh, and it was good in that it opened up the opportunity for everybody to be covered in some way, but it's costly. And so we've got to do something about that. Uh, I think that people, well, now that we know you got to pay to get educated, uh, I think that... <laughs> I think that people, I think that people are paying attention to that and say, well, you know, what are our elected officials doing to take the money out of education? And Democrats are the only ones who have moved to make community colleges free of charge, and it's happening in some states. Republicans are not doing this. They look at a Betsy DeVos, and they see that she's undermining public education. So I think that people are beginning to see there is a difference between the Democrats and the Republicans, but... They have a right to question what is going on in the Democratic Party and how do you really get involved in the Democratic Party. For far too long, you know, the parties are made up with county committees and state committees, but there are only a few people who, you know, participate in it. And I think people should take them over. I think people, and it's easy to do, really. I think that one of the things you, you, you can do is you can take over your county committees, you can get on the ballot and run uh, you know, for county committee in your assembly districts. You can um, become a delegate, go to your elected official, and say, I want to be appointed 
uh, to the state party. Nobody does that. And so, yeah, the state parties, uh, the county committees can be taken over, and the Democratic National Committee. I think it's a matter of people being energized and wanting to do it and learn how the party operates. Boom. And... Mm. And uh, Trump just released his budget. What should we know about that budget that he released? You should know that it is a low-down, dirty, nasty budget. You should know that, you know, for example, in HUD, they're cutting HUD by, I don't know, I think almost 20%. 18%, I believe it is. Uh, you should know that um, this is a budget that is undermining our ability to try and, you know, deal with the least of these and with people who work every day, with families. Uh, we, have, um, we have issues in this budget uh, where uh, we have funds uh, that go to the cities to deal with low-income housing and to deal with other kinds of issues, some flexibility they have with the community development, block grant monies. All of that's been wiped out, it's been taken away, and so we're going through the budget and uh, we're going to go through it line by line, but already it looks nasty. It looks bad. Now, last question is, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? My mother was, uh, you know, a very strong woman who, you know, uneducated, but provided a lot of leadership, you know, in the community, what have you. And I think what she taught me was, you know, it's all right to be happy, but it's all right to be angry. And you know, to be an angry black woman is a terrible thing. You know, it's a, you know how they have demonized that. But my mother always said, be true to your feelings. You know what I'm saying? If you go around grinning when you're angry, something's wrong with you. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> there we go. So, you know, be true to your feelings. Uh, be loving, be kind, all of that. But when you, when, the, when you are treated badly, uh, when you are undermined, when you are bullied, it's all right to not like that and to say it. There we go. Everybody give it up for our Congresswoman, Maxine Waters. Don't go anywhere. More Potting the People's coming. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.
Next, I'm joined by Erica Chidi Cohen. She's a doula and author who thinks a lot about the role of race and bias in healthcare. She's also the co-founder of Loom, an educational health company focused on period, sex, pregnancy, and parenting. Here we go. Please welcome maternal health expert and activist Erica Chidi Cohen. Hello. Thank you for joining us. Let's talk about your work. Thank you for having me. Now, before we get started, can you talk to us a little bit about your, your background and how you got started with Loom? So for those that don't know, I am the co-founder and CEO of Loom. Loom provides empowered education from periods to parenting here in LA. So our core competency- From periods to parenting is you a, know, good, that's a good line. P to P. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> So our core competency is health literacy and community building. I would say my ascent to this work is slightly fracturous. I lived in the States until I was 10 and then moved to South Africa for about nine or 10 years. Um, I went to college and actually before I went to college, I went to culinary school, then got my BA in art history and visual culture and media and communications, um, ended up in PR and fashion for a hot moment um, and realized that was not really what resonated. However, my father is a doctor, my mom is a nurse, so I grew up in a very clinical orientated home. I'm also first generation Nigerian American, so um, I don't know if anyone, hello, hi. <laughs> that's a home where, uh, well, that's a culture anyway, I feel there's a lot of focus on moving into the type of career that is either be a doctor, be a lawyer, all of that. So I definitely moved more in the humanities direction, but. What was always happening as I was growing up is I was always holding space for people moving through transitions. If people had like health questions, they were always kind of coming to me. And so I always felt very focused on women and the body growing up. When I decided that PR fashion was really not where I wanted to be, I took a sabbatical, talked to my parents, and they both were like, what about midwifery? I think that could be like a nice place for you. Um, so I moved, basically went back to South Africa, took a beat, moved from there to San Francisco. We have a lot of family in the Bay Area and started to do all my nursing prerequisites to apply to a master's program to become a midwife. And en route to doing that, I found out about doulas. And what I really liked about doulas is that they're not clinical providers, they're lay individuals. It's peer-to-peer -peer support. So it's much more psychoeducational. So I'm not checking cervixes, I'm not, you know, drawing blood, I'm really focusing on the whole person. And I loved it. And I decided to take a training under a midwife in San Francisco. And I just fell in love with the work. Uh, so that was kind of how I got to doula work. Now in prepping to talk to you tonight, I learned about the connection between modern obstetrics. Mm -hmm. That's, I said it right, right? That's right. I was up there, I was practicing y'all. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like obstetric, it was like, obstetrics. No, obstetrics and gynecology and slavery. Yes. Can you talk to us about that? Yes, I can. I sigh as I say it because it's, it's, it's all very um, exhausting. But I think most people aren't aware that the first women's hospital was on a plantation. And a man by the name of James Sims is considered kind of the father of gynecology or obstetrics in this country. And he experimented on black female slaves. And that story is not really known. And so if we kind of fast forward to now and we have these really terrible outcomes for black women 
in terms of maternal health, but just in general, uh, it, it really began back then. All of those medical fictions were propagated back then. So when I say medical fictions, I'm, I'm referring to the fact that still, and actually I, I don't have the exact date of it, but a, a, a study was done at the University of Virginia. Clinicians were interviewed about implicit bias and kind of what their thoughts were around black people and versus white people in terms of the type of clinical care they were receiving the biases were developed back then. So the idea that black people have thicker skin than white people, we have less nerve endings, so we feel pain less intensely than say white people would. And so, you know, you would think it's 20, you know, 19, is that the year we're in? That's right. <laughs> yes. Or in 2019, uh, you think that would no longer be uh, prevalent, but it really is, and it, it, it dictates the type of care that black women receive. And so, for those of you who may or may not know, black women are three times as likely to die in childbirth than their white counterparts, and black babies are four times, actually, I think it's six times more likely in Los Angeles to die under a year than white babies. Wow. And so, so just to kind of unpack that a little further, so one of the reasons why we would think that the mortality rates are where they are for black women in childbirth has to do with implicit bias. And I'm, I'm sure everyone here kind of has an idea. The fact is with implicit bias, it's not something you can kind of exercise out through introspection. It's just, it's deeply innate. It's just something that you've developed over time. Um, and what's really interesting and kind of fantastic right now is that um, recently a new bill came to the floor, um, I think actually just a couple of weeks ago, that's trying to just develop more dignity in the childbirth process. And I, I, th I think it was Holly, I think it's Holly Williams, Senator Holly Williams. She brought this bill to the floor and the idea is that she wants to make sure that all OBGYNs in California have to have implicit bias training. Um, at least every year, every two years, or yes, yes, very much, um, or as deemed necessary if they, you know, do anything that seems like they need that type of training in order to try and, you know, eradicate this issue. The fact is you can't get rid of implicit bias because it's so innate, but the idea is that kind of like cognitive behavioral therapy, you can hijack the brain and keep reminding right. that person that, oh, this is how you're thinking and you think about it differently. And then when it comes to babies under a year dying, what's so fascinating about that, because when I first found out about that statistic, I was, I was like, what's going on? I don't, I don't really understand what's happening with that. What's happening is that black women are having their babies early. They're having preterm labor. And so all these babies that are dying are babies that are born premature. And then when we kind of trace that back, it has a lot to do with the fact that black women carry a lot of just innate stress, just being, just looking like I do. And keep in mind, a lot of these stats don't have any movement regardless of where you are socioeconomically. It's just, if you look like this, you are probably going to have a more challenging time. And when I was learning more about that, I remember my own story that I was born premature, so was my brother. Things I just hadn't really thought about. So, you know, I think, and just another thing to kind of tack on to that, there was a study done, I don't know, maybe like four or five years ago, and the study was around the fact that there are these chromosomal markers that basically delineate kind of, you know, age, essentially. I think they're called like telomeres. And white women and black women that were the same age had their telomeres kind of looked at. And black women were seven years older than white women. Right. So, you know, this is this concept called weathering. And so, you know, 
the median age of childbirth right now is 28. And we all know, whether you're a clinician or an educator, that the older you are, the more challenging your childbirth is going to be or the more complications that might be you know, connected to it. And so to think that just to be a black person, you might be chronologically you know, 30, but you're actually 37. I mean, all of these things play into it. And I think it's just, it's just so important to kind of, you know, Keep that in mind and keep, the, keep in mind that the fact that racism is omnipresent. It's not coming in and out. It's constantly there. And that, you know, people that look like me and also not even just black women, but foreign-born Latina women have a similar experience where there's these constant microaggressions that are there all the time. It is interesting when you think about the research around uh, the, matern- the mortality rate. Uh, of, of black women, we find three things. One is the implicit bias that you talk about. The second is that uh, black women start prenatal care later than other uh, subsets of women, and mostly because of the insurance issue. Yes. And the third that I was really fascinated by is that black women actually have their babies in a smaller subset of hospitals that often are the lowest quality hospitals in the geographic area which is like an interesting yeah. stat. So like you see these generations of women who like they've always gone to this one hospital and like there's like a tradition, but it's like the hospital is actually low quality. So there are people now trying to figure out like how do we actually change the distribution so that like women can get better care, uh, which I thought was interesting. What are the solutions in this space? Again, there's not a one size fits all for this, but I think one solution is Figuring out what allyship really looks like. I think obviously doulas are important in terms of how does somebody find a doula? There's so many ways. I think one way you can use DONA, which is uh, a national kind of organization where do D O D O N A DONA DONA International. Um, And there's also large kind of doula consortiums like uh, Doula Trainings International. They have a really great registry where you can look for people. But I think especially for women of color that you know, the interpersonal referral is kind of like where you want to go. So it's Facebook, it's Instagram, it's asking friends, people that have had experiences uh, in order to kind of, you know, figure out who would be like the best fit for you. You know, doulas are available across the board in terms of there's a lot of doulas that you could work with that aren't that expensive. Generally, regardless of what ethnicity you are, doulas do help reduce the need of interventions in labor. So that obviously is going to be a helpful thing. I think what I'm kind of interested, though, in terms of the hospital setting and trying to improve these outcomes is that doulas that are not of color and providers, clinicians that are not of color, have this awareness that there is that implicit bias. I think that's really key. And I feel that there could be a really interesting shift if we were able to kind of integrate doula support with culturally competent, so these are people who understand the environment that they're working in, so doulas who understand the environment that they're working with, to help kind of bring across the information and to really help keep mothers and, you know, and and people safe. Can you talk to me about the tampon tax, and what can we do to advocate for better in that space? Well, I think just people knowing that there's a tampon tax, like who in here knows that there's a tampon tax? Hands up. Okay, that's like not, that's not that many people. So now all of you know, in California, if you buy a tampon, a pad, a menstrual cup, it's, it's taxed. It's not taxed everywhere. No, it's not taxed in all states, but it is taxed here. It doesn't make any sense because obviously menstruating, bleeding is a natural bodily physiological function. It should, what we need to take care of it should not be taxed. It's toilet paper is not taxed. Also Viagra and also any kind of <laughs> male performance drug is not taxed. 
So why they tax it? They're taxing it because it's a highly used, replenishable good. Uh, so you need it every month. You need a lot of it. So you know, and if we didn't have it taxed, it, we would be saving you know people that bleed, and that doesn't mean just and also not just female identifying people bleed. People that are trans bleed. $20 million a year. So it doesn't make any sense. And in terms of advocating, I think it's just for the first step is just knowing that that's there. Um, and, you know, talking to, you know, you're getting involved around the legislation and like protesting around it and making more awareness. It is, that. There is legislation to end the tampon tax. Correct. It actually came to the floor, I believe, in December. We're that's your homework, moving. everybody. Be against the Tampon tax. No tampon yes. tax. Tampons should um, not be taxed. They should almost be free. I mean, it's just, yeah. right? It's like, it's, it's bizarre. It's bizarre. It doesn't make any sense. Now, two questions we ask everybody is one is that there are a lot of people who are losing hope in this moment. They feel like they have done everything. They have like protested, they've called, they've emailed, and like the world's not changing in the way that they want it to change. What do you say to those people whose hope might be challenged? I feel really bolstered that we're having the conversation we're having tonight. I think, I think it's just so important for us to detoxify the conversation around things that are not really being spoken about. Um, I, I, I know it's, a, it's, it's so intense right now, but something about the fact that everything feels like it's being burnt down means that something good or something malleable is going to come out the other side. So I just feel like we have to just keep doing the work and that we have to just stay focused on where we could go as opposed to getting kind of mired in what is happening right now. What's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? That it's okay to rest, you know? Like, seriously, I think as a black, thank you, appreciate it. All of us should have a nap, it's, it's important. <laughs> um, you know, as a black person, and I think even someone in your position, there is this kind of inner metronome to excel and get it done and optimize and you know and fix and change and help and hold space and all of that and it's really exhausting and i think you know when you are black the baseline is stress and so i think it's revelatory to move away from that and be like actually i'm going to take the day off or i'm not going to respond to this email or i'm not going to i'm not actually i'm activated by what you just said but i'm not actually going to respond to it I don't need to. Also, I think metabolizing the fact that rest doesn't mean failure, rest doesn't mean you're slipping. It just means that you need to kind of restore and repair so you can go on and do the next thing. So yeah, it's okay to rest. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning into Posse of the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out and rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. You can also find us on Twitter at Pod Save the People. That's P-O-D-S-A-V-E-T-H-E-P-P-L. Thanks to John Lovett, Erica T.D. Cohen, and Congressman Maxine Waters for joining us in L.A. See you next week. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. 
No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.